Welcome everybody. My name is Brett. I am an alcoholic. Uh, if uh, if I get too far from the mic and you can't hear in the back, just raise your hand. And uh, I want to come in loud and clear. Start with what it was like. I was born in a small town, New Hampshire, and ironically, just a few hours drive from both the birthplace of Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson. They're both from Vermont. Um, so I've always felt, you know, with Dr. Bob being a surgeon and myself a retired surgeon, I always felt some kind of a karma with those guys uh, having been born in the same neck of the woods. Uh, really had an idyllic uh, upbringing for the first uh, eight or nine years. Uh, uh, my father was a country doctor, and uh, his uh, his dad, who was an uh, excellent carpenter, came up to New Hampshire from West Virginia and built a cottage on a, a little lake called Loon Pond. And uh, all summer long, my brother and I just ran around with no shoes, no shirts, like little wild Indians. One of our favorite things was to walk around the lake and collect bottle caps, and almost all of them were from beer bottles. And we weren't real cognizant of that, I don't think. But it was kind of ironic. My favorite bottle cap was the Fighting Lion from Lowenbrow. And, and little did I know that a few years down the road, I'd end up living in Germany for uh, three years and even making it to Oktoberfest and drinking Lowenbrow. <laughs> Small world. But you know, my world shifted. One day, came home and there was a bottle of whiskey on the kitchen counter. I, you know, I'd never seen a bottle of whiskey in our house. And I knew my parents drank and they had parties and whatnot and they were, they had a lot of friends. But like in the middle of the week to have a bottle of whiskey sitting on the kitchen counter and you know, uh, up until that point, our, our parents had been just perfect parents. And, uh, but as uh, life would have it, their parenting started to slip a bit. And it coincided with the, that bottle showing up. It was, sometimes it was Virginia gentlemen, sometimes it was early times. One of the two. Why, why do I remember that? I guess I'm an alcoholic and I tune into that kind of stuff. But, Anyhow, uh, mom started developing an anxiety issue, and uh, my father had her on a, the Valium of the day, and boy, if she just had one strong drink, she'd, she'd start <laughs> going to sleep. And at the dinner table, if, if, you know, her, her face would almost be in the mashed potatoes. And the old man would get mad, and then there'd be a big frickin' row. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was an overly sensitive child, uh, we, we, we read that we alcoholics tend to be overly sensitive. I, was, uh, I had a tendency to be uh, a perfectionist. Uh, I wanted to please the parents more than my brother. Uh, I, uh, I tried to be real self-reliant. I think I wanted to curry favor with my parents because my, my brother was a year and a half older than me and I felt like I had to compete for uh, attention and a lot of other things. So. Uh, I, try, I tried to be low maintenance, 
and uh, keep keep the parents happy. But uh, I was overly conscientious. I had I had an overly active conscience, you know. So I was really tuned into feeling guilt or shame. So with parents that were getting in alcohol problems and with alcohol problems on both sides of the family, uh, probably wasn't. Uh, you know, I probably didn't have the a makeup to be a, a normal drinker. There were red flags. Uh, fast forward till I was in my uh, mid-teens. By that point, uh, I did not bring my friends home uh, because I was afraid one or both of the parents would be three sheets of the wind and it got embarrassing. Uh, uh, when I got a little older, I learned that if I had anything serious to talk to my dad about, you gotta, gotta get him before 10 in the morning. Because he started getting pretty balmy after that. But uh, despite that, I, I would have to say, uh, uh, the, the folks, they did the best they could with, with their backgrounds. And uh, we never wanted for anything. They taught us, my brother and I, a, a strong work ethic. They taught us to pursue education, and they kept the roof over our head. So uh, I, I, I don't really criticize them uh, as harshly as I used to. I hated the way, though, I hated the fights. I hated, uh, like when I got older in college, going back home for the holidays, hated, the, you know, the drunken fights. My old man got... He got cranked up one night about something, and he threw his entire stereo system down the stairwell. I mean, he, there were times you had to duck because it got volatile. So, uh, and the holidays, you know, bring a lot of that out. <laughs> oh, boy. I wasn't the only one that didn't like to go home for the holidays. Well, i get my notes a little closer here. Next was the big disconnect. I, I, when I got to be 15 years of age, my brother now was uh, almost 17, and I started uh, drinking. My drinking was going to be different. I don't recall ever, ever having a single reservation about drinking when I was 15, even though I, I, I hated the trouble and the strife it had caused in my family. but. You know, what was it? Peer pressure? Was it the culture of the day? Uh, as I got older, ironically, some of it was to numb out the pain of the family dysfunction. If uh, we had a huge row in the family, you know, that was a trigger for me to drink. But uh, I was confident it would never get out of control. Well, Starting in college, for the next 25 years, I was a, a binge drinker. In college, I, I don't know what college was like you know, for everybody in the country, but uh, f for me, it was just a natural thing to do on at least one night of the weekend is to get plastered and uh, to uh, drink heavily. Oh, thank you. It's open. Thank you for opening it. Um, so anyhow, uh, my binge drinking on weekends, that, that went on for all through college, uh, medical school, residency, and beyond. Um, 
And I look back on it, I was just like tempting John Barleycorn. Say, I dare you to make an alcoholic out of me. And, uh, you know, if you, if you, you know, that was a risk I really didn't need to take, but uh, it did catch up with me. I, I got terribly sick hangovers. Uh, one of the older medications that uh, uh, alcoholics were given to try to persuade them not to drink was antabuse. And now there's a lot of newer ones on that theme. But if you if you if you look at uh, if you Google antabuse, it, it talks about the symptoms that you'll get very quickly if if you start drinking alcohol on top of antabuse and uh, uh, severe headache, severe nausea, protracted vomiting. That's what I got when I drank a little too much on those binges. Uh, you know, my body was trying to tell me something. And, you know, for 25 years, I would intermittently get these sick hangovers. But uh, I don't recall it ever being a big deterrent to drink. I liked the way I felt when I drank, particularly that first drink. I mean, it just smoothed everything out. Well, I remember it was somewhere around the mid-90s. Uh, I was on uh, vacation with my ex-wife. Middle, of the, We had gotten a bottle of rum, and we each had a drink or two out of it. And um, But when she wasn't looking all evening, I was pouring uh, shots of rum and uh, drinking excessively. We go to bed. She woke up with uh, chest pain. And she wakes me up and says, hey, you got to help me and you know, whatever. I tried to stand up, and I was so ataxic, I was so dizzy, I fell down. I'd never had that before. Um, should have gotten Captain Morgan's, maybe. But anyhow, uh, she didn't have a serious health problem, it turned out. But boy, she, uh, she just read me the riot act, because I wasn't there for her. And, um, you know, uh, she just said, uh, you know, you got to quit this. So I said, no problem. I'll quit today. So that, that was my, uh, that's when I went underground. <laughs> yeah. Nobody knew. <laughs> you know, uh, if, if, so for the, the next 10 years or so, I, I uh, did my best to hide my drinking from everybody, particularly my wife. And I really didn't, I really thought she was on to me. I mean, I maybe a little too readily uh, volunteer to go go out and get the pizza, and uh, I had to hustle because I the, I usually went and somewhere and got an oil can of Heineken because I couldn't find Lowenbrow, and I um, I you know I cruised around uh, you know down in that oil can before I got home, and every once in a while she, she, if it took a little too long for me to get home, you know she'd say, "You've been drinking?" I'd say, "Nope." Whenever someone's voice goes up two octaves, I mean, what does that tell you? I mean, and so that, that happened, you know, every once in a while. So I, fi I kind of figured, you know, she thinks I'm, she knows that I'm, I'm drinking, but is uh, putting up with it. Uh, but I was trying to quit on my own. Uh, like you folks, you know, a thousand times, tried to quit. And... Um, 
went through all the different machinations we do. It used to be, all right, I'll just have one drink. And then instead of, you know, one ounce of vodka, it was four ounces of vodka. Uh, did everything. I, I, vodka worked for me because uh, it got me where I wanted to feel uh, as far as being drunk. And uh, my wife couldn't smell it. I, uh, I'm told that some, some people can, but my wife couldn't smell the vodka. And um, uh, I can remember uh, in a typical, a typical day, um, I'd get up in the morning, I'd look at myself in the mirror, and, and I felt guilty because I was living this lie. All the relatives, you know, they thought I was on the wagon, you know, all my friends, and, um, and I was, you know, uh, I had some low-level depression going on anyhow. And how smart is that uh, to treat depression with a depressant? But, uh, and, you know, and I, if you're a doctor, you really got to say, boy, that ain't too smart. But uh, I'd, uh, I'd get up in the morning and I'd say, what, what's it going to take for you to quit? Are you going to have to run over somebody on 10th Avenue? Uh, what's the crisis going to be? And then I'd say, all right, today I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink today. So uh, take a shower. I, I was a worrier and a brooder. In the shower, I would start worrying about stuff that had never, never, never was going to happen. Uh, and uh, that's not a good way to start your day, you know, just uh, brooding and worrying and stewing over stuff. But anyhow, uh, then I go to work. And in this last couple of years of my drinking, it was like, Every 20 minutes, got to have a drink, got to have a drink. It was like Chinese water torture. But um, so invariably, I, I'd head home at the end of the day, and it, any evening I wasn't on duty, I'd be drinking. So I'd be heading down West 10th on this day, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink. And before I knew it, somebody turned the steering wheel into the drive through at West Side Liquor. I didn't turn the damn steering wheel. Somebody did. And there I was for uh, my first cocktail of the evening. It was a Mike's Hard with two vodka shooters in it. Uh, and uh, that, that was my uh, toddy to get me uh, all of a mile and a half to my home. Then I would uh, go downstairs and I'd sneak uh, uh, vodka in my cranberry juice. and. Uh, by this time, I was getting old enough that if I drank very much, you know, my tongue got so thick, you know, I was dysarthric. I mean, I would just be like mashed potato mouth. And so I, I found myself not speaking much to my ex-wife. You know, I'd let her do the talking, and I was rather monosyllabic, like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> and then we'd do this dance where, you know, people that have been married a long time will, will sip each other's drink. Well, I didn't want to sip in my drink because then she'd find me out. So I'd, I'd put it in just the right spot. It was out of reach. And then if she went over there, I'd kind of go over here and shuffle around. It was like a dance, you know. But um, anyhow, that went on for, for quite a while. But, you know, it seemed like uh, our, the marriage was getting pretty devitalized. And... Uh, if I wasn't sedated with booze, you know, we were, we were starting to bicker and argue a lot. And um, I, I lucked out in one, one event. I was never physically abusive 
to my ex-wife except for one time. And when, when we would get in our most heated arguments was when I had a drink or two. And uh, she knew how to push my buttons. And she said something that set me off. And I just grabbed her under her armpits, shoved her against the wall. And I'm sure I had a look on my face like I was going to cut her head off. And she was a pretty fierce individual. But, you know, when I did that, she just withered like a flower and started crying. And I started feeling all bad. Well, I didn't know it at the time. But, uh, you know, I could have spent a night or two in jail for that. All she had to do was call, call 911, you know. Um, so um, I hadn't been in jail yet. I know uh, it was, we were in uh, traveling in Ireland once. If you ever get to go to Ireland and you have like a whole week of sunny weather, it, I mean, you're blessed. And, and that's what we experienced. It was, it was magical. But whenever I could, I'd slip away and try to uh, get a drink or two, which wasn't too hard in Ireland. But... Um, I was, I was conflicted. I was really at a point where I wanted to stop. But I was just a self-reliant SOB like most of us. And I wasn't going to ask for help. You know, I, I got this. You know, I, somehow I'm going to lick this thing. So I was, uh, uh, in a, we were in a B&B &B and I got talking to this Irish guy. And I told him how I was really uh, trying to stop drinking. And he looked at me like I had lobsters coming out of my ears. He said, my God, man, two points and a shot. It's your God given. I said, yeah, yeah, it's my God given. That's just what I wanted to hear. And ironically, right after that, a Guinness truck drove right by the B&B in big letters that said Guinness for strength. Another Another great message. I think that those two things postponed my recovery five years. Wow. Okay. So I'd say by, uh, certainly by the year 2000, my drinking was compulsive. Uh, I didn't have a choice. And uh, if I wasn't drinking, I was thinking about getting that next drink. And, um, you know, I, I did a good job. You know, we all have that game face, particularly us guys. You know, we stuff everything. And my friends didn't know that I'd been, you know, battling a low-level depression for most of my life. They didn't know that I, I had this drinking thing going on. They didn't know my marriage was uh, really heading down the toilet. Uh, and... Uh, so I kept all this stuff uh, kind of bottled up. And, um, and speaking of bottled up, I had a bottle in the workbench. I had a bottle in my golf bag. I had a bottle in the furnace room. And uh, probably a couple more places that you guys used as a hiding place that I don't even know of, I forgot about. When I moved out of that house, I are probably still finding bottles. I knew it was getting bad when... Uh, if I went out to golf by myself, um, you know, after a few holes, I just went to the 19th hole. So, you know, I, I was, you know, disinterested in a lot of things that used to I, I get a lot of pleasure out of. So, restless, irritable, discontent. 
Uh, which Sunday afternoons were, were a killer for me. Uh, being off a couple days and then going back to a stressful job, that transition, and if, yeah, if it just drove me to drink. And uh, if, if in the rare instance I uh, hadn't stocked up properly and I was just ready to jump out of my skin, Okay. Moving right along. You know, I look back on it. Uh, I never seriously entertained uh, seeking help for two reasons. Number one, I was self-reliant. I thought I'd be a weak sister to ask for help of any kind. Number two, I wasn't done with alcohol yet. And that first drink felt so good. But in the evenings when I'd chase that with well, second, third, or fourth, you know, after, after the, about 20 minutes after that first drink, that good, good feeling just faded away, and I was restless, irritable, and discontent. But I kept chasing it. And I bet I'm not the only one in the room that did that. Uh, it was like, uh, maybe, maybe, the, maybe tonight will be different. Maybe that second or third one will still make me feel good, but... Never quite worked out that way. So anyhow, let's uh, fast forward into the, the blackout, the fallout, the kicked out, and, and the bailout. <laughs> I, I only know of one blackout that I ever had, and it was a doozy. Uh, my wife found me in the office with a, a bottle of vodka in one hand and a porn video on the TV. <laughs> oh, tell it all. <laughs> Dr. Hunter was looking at porn. <laughs> All right. Debbie Does Dallas, Volume 2. Oh, God. You know, a, a wife is going to kind of take that uh, one or two ways. One is, oh, honey, I didn't know you were having this problem. I, we got to help you. We got to get you help. Or it's Attila the Hun's going to... <laughs> castrate you. <laughs> well, my wife went the second route, and uh, so she uh, she gave me the ultimatum. You know, you get to AA, or we're splitting the sheets. She kicked me out of the house, and uh, uh, I, I I was really surprised. I thought she, I thought she knew I was cheating on this drinking thing, but she claimed that she thought I was you know hundred percent teetotaling it. So I was found out. She kicked me out. So the bailout was to go to AA. And, and this is, a, you know, I'm a little atypical in, in the sense that we, we all know that generally if the judge sends you to AA, if, if the sheriff sends you to AA, if the wife sends you to AA, a lot of times that's not going to work so well. But um, uh, the first, my biggest reason to comply and go to AA was uh, I didn't want to look at an expensive divorce. The marriage was on the slab at that point, and so, you know, uh, uh, we weren't going to miss each other that much, but um, I was in the last 10 years of my practice, and, uh, you know, uh, retirement monies were going to get <laughs> cut into big time, so that, that, that was a big incentive to go to AA. Not a good reason to go to AA, but it, it, it incentivized me. But by that time, I, I really did want to quit. And um, 
I was made to get help. So anyhow, um, that ushered me, it was in uh, January 7th, 2006, I made my first trip to AA to Loveland Group. And it was the old Loveland Group under the street. And um, it was uh, in January, uh, it was very dark for that late meeting. And it uh, took me quite a lot of uh, effort to find that place. I almost bailed on it a couple times, but uh, I kept calling them. And they have a, had a little phone in the back room. And they kept answering and saying, no, go here, go there, two blocks that way. <laughs> and so I finally found them. And it, uh, I don't know what I expected, but over the years, I, I thought AA was for losers. And that's, that's where losers go, that, you know, can't handle their life. And uh, man, did I find a bunch of winners there that night. There were... Uh, there must have been 15 people there, and a lot of them with long-term sobriety. And uh, they uh, welcomed me into the fold, and uh, I loved it. I, I really felt like this is where I belong. And so when I left there, I, I was just so uh, impressed with the unconditional love and regard they gave me and, they, uh, and the hope that I experienced from that uh, visit. So... I went to a lot of meetings. I didn't drink between meetings. I pretty much I did what they told me. Uh, I kept coming back. I read the big book in the 12 and 12. I got a sponsor. Didn't get a sponsor as soon as I recommend my sponsees get a sponsor. It took about tw six months before I got a sponsor. And um, I, I, it was the only time that I tried to tweak this program. And I, I went up to this guy that was chairing meetings, and I knew he was a golfer. And uh, I, uh, I said to him, hey, would you be my sponsor? And we can do the steps on the golf course. I mean, we can pound the 12 steps out in 12 holes. And he looked at me and said, ain't going to work that way. Get yourself a sponsor, and, and you do what he says, and get to work on this thing. So, I lost track of my cell phone. Oh, here it is. How am I doing here time-wise? Oh, we're good. So, you know, uh, all right, fill in the blank. Insight is cheap. Have you ever heard that saying? Insight is cheap? I mean, when I, when I hit the, the doors of AA, I knew I was an alcoholic, and I knew I needed help. I knew I couldn't fix it by myself. Uh, I knew I had a god hole the size of Brazil. Um, and, um, but, uh, you know, all that insight hadn't gotten me anywhere. So when, it, when I was acquainted with the first step, powerless over alcohol, lives had become unmanageable. I was on board with that. I knew I, knew I was powerless over alcohol. I couldn't have one drink ever. And um, 
you know, when your wife kicks you out and you're looking at an expensive divorce and a whole shitstorm of problems at home, I, that's pretty unmanageable. So I, I didn't have any trouble with that step. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I knew damn well it was going to take a power greater than me. And I felt the power in the room. And I, I was lucky. I didn't have a, a problem with God. At that point, my concept of God was the great omnipotent spirit of the universe. And it, it's, uh, in my faith journey, it's changed quite a lot over the years. Uh, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Um, I could uh, I could intellectually uh, get on board with that, uh, but giving up control, you know, I, I went through years of training to control the situation. Uh, I was geared at being self-reliant and controlling everything around me. And the idea of giving up my will to God, uh, it, it, it took quite a while. That was a stretch. But once I did that, boy, there was a, there was a benefit to that. Uh, I heard people in the room talking about turning it over. You know, you, when you're worrying and brooding over a problem, and you're fearful over a problem, turn it over to God. Well, I, I, I did that uh, exercise daily, uh, and it took about a year and a half before it really gelled. It, was, it started feeling good. I, I had developed a, a, enough of a conscious contact with God by that point that I really uh, had a personal relationship with the God of my understanding. And, you know, I, when, I, when I start worrying about a problem, I'd snap out of it. I'd say, all right, have I done everything I should do to steer this in a good direction, everything that's reasonable? And if I have, turn it over. And it became such a relief uh, for a lifelong warrior. Man, that was like new life. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, admitted to God, ourselves, and other human uh, being the exact nature of our wrongs. Uh, I, uh, you know, we hear a lot of people really balk at the fourth step. They're afraid of it. But I was all in at that point because I wanted what you guys had in, in the rooms of uh, Loveland AA. I wanted that. And so, uh, and I figured I probably hadn't done anything worse than you guys anyhow. So uh, I, uh, I charged, you know, right into that. One thing I could have done better early on is I could have vetted uh, my sponsor with, you know, asking what their sobriety date was and uh, uh, do you have a sponsor? Do you sponsor others? You know, uh, my first sponsor disappeared. My second one got drunk. My third one got drunk. But uh, I think I'm on a roll now with my fourth one. <laughs> We're entire ready, uh, entirely ready to uh, have God remove these defects of character. Well, I was ready for that one. Humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. And um, I, I learned from you guys in the rooms that it was not going to be on my schedule, but on, on God's schedule. Step eight and nine, making restitution. Um, the, the person I needed to uh, make amends with uh, 
was obviously my wife, and it was the hardest to mend because I was still, still angry at her. You know, I blamed, I, you know, and in my way of thinking, she was one of the biggest triggers of my drinking. And um, uh, so to, to make a heartfelt amend to her uh, took a lot of doing. And I had to do it a couple of times. And um, uh, but you know, it paid dividends. It was like a, a weight off my shoulders. I, I had cleaned up my side of the street. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Uh, my fellows in AA taught me and my sponsors taught me to get a routine going. And so what works for me and has for a long time is um, an AM routine of prayer and meditation and expressing gratitude. Uh, every morning I, I express gratitude to the God of my understanding. And I, I ask him for one more day, another 24 hours, because I've, I've learned that uh, every morning I wake up with untreated alcoholism. And until I do something, like my morning routine, you know, you know I, I'm an alcoholic and I'm untreated. Then uh, during the middle of the day, uh, early on that first year, I'd get cranked up a lot during the middle of my work day. But uh, the serenity prayer was a great tool. Um, invariably, when I got cranked up at work, I was trying to control something that was uncontrollable. I was trying to control something that I had no power over. And uh, that serenity prayer was just like a hitting the reset button and uh, was a great tool particularly uh, the first year or two of my sobriety. Every night I learned to uh, uh, do an inventory of my day. Had I been a jerk to anybody? Do I owe anyone an apology to tomorrow? Um, um, that first six months, I frequently did. <laughs> I didn't realize, you know, I, I wasn't any uh, Boy Scout at work. I could really snap at people and... Uh, I learned I needed to apologize for that. And when you have to make apology after apology, boy, that, that gets tiring. And it really uh, teaches you to shape up and, and treat people the way they should be treated. My uh, spiritual journey uh, led me to church. I met a, a wonderful woman in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous who was uh, a uh, Jesus follower. And, uh, and now, to, today, Christ is my Savior. And uh, as I say, it's, I've come a long way to get to that point. And um, it uh, works for me. So anyhow, um, I learned uh, uh, to show up. I learned for, for in the first six or seven years, about the only form of service that I did was sharing at meetings. 
um, I was still working full time and doing a lot of night call, and uh, uh, so I, I didn't find the energy to do much more than that. But uh, uh, when when I retired, I really uh, uh, got uh, heavily involved in sponsorship, and, and it's not for everybody. Uh, it's uh, it's great if you can do it though, because to watch close up and personal, watch people uh, come out of the ashes and uh, get that smile, get a sparkle in their eye. It's a miracle that you don't want to miss. If you, you know, if you can do it, it it's a wonderful endeavor. The, this, this, the kit of spiritual tools is such a wonderful uh, benefit of this program. And, um, you know, when, when I went through the fourth step, I didn't think I had fear. I, I, I didn't think I was anything much I was afraid of other than getting found out about my closeted drinking. Uh, but you, you go through the fear inventory, and I realized I had, a lot, I had my share of fears. I had a lot of fears. But what I found out was uh, that as my faith grew stronger, um, fear really dissipated. And this program taught me the connection between fear and anger. When I'm angry, there's underlying fear. And I learned to look for that. And the stronger my faith in God became, the quicker these fears just melted away. Because I saw people in the rooms saying that they felt like no matter what, no matter what comes at them, they, they're going to be okay. They're going to get through it. And I, and I wanted that. And I worked on a conscious contact with God uh, to the point that I have that now. Um, I heard uh, one of the past delegates down at area talk about how step 12 can be a real yardstick. How well are you working this program? Uh, having had a spiritual awakening, well, you, you, you could stop right there. We ask ourselves, have we had a spiritual awakening? Uh, do we believe in something bigger than us? Uh, even if it's just the group, the love of the group, uh, or are we faking it? Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry the message to alcoholics and practice the principles in all our affairs. So yeah, I have to ask myself on a, on a weekly or monthly basis, uh, um, how am I doing it? Am, am, I, am I carrying the message? And am I applying the principles to my fellows? Um, you know, when somebody disses me a little bit, do I jump all over them with an angry face? Or do I take a deep breath and, and ask them, uh, gee, you must be having a bad day. So, anyhow, I'm uh, very uh, lucky to have this program. And uh, I'm lucky to have a great sponsor. And I'm lucky to have all you as my fellows to help me get through the rest of this crazy life. Thank you.